Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, this morning we'll read the first seven verses. Please give your full attention to God's Word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it, please, it, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling you the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. About a decade or so ago, when I would be reading books or articles on church leadership or listening to messages given about church leadership, I kept seeing and hearing the word missional. I remember thinking at the time, is that even a word? But it was the hip word, it was the trendy word, it was what all really cutting edge church leaders was talking about. Are you missional? Is your church missional? At first I thought it was just a code word for a church with lots of tattoos and skinny jeans and, and free trade coffee, but I realized there's a lot more to it than that. The word missional was being used as a standard for measuring how healthy your church was. Do you have missional leadership in your church? Do you have missional outreach programs? Do you have missional small groups? That was the, to be the epitome of what a healthy church was to look like. I remember reading this quote from Alan Hirsch, who was one of the leaders of the movement. He, he gave this quote in Christianity Today quite a while ago. He said, a proper understanding of missional begins with recovering a missionary understanding of God. By his very nature, God is a sent one who takes the initiative to redeem his creation. Because we are the sent people of God, the church is the instrument of God's mission in the world. To be missional means to be sent into the world. We do not expect people to come to us. This posture differentiates a missional church from an attractional church. Well, I thought about this whole concept of whether your church is missional or attractional. Are we sent out or are we sitting back waiting? All this came to mind while I was studying this passage that Paul writes to Timothy here in chapter 2. This begins a section, which is interesting that we're thinking about being sent out, because this section really dwells with worship. In the next uh, several uh, verses, passages, really within the next couple chapters, he's dealing with instructions for the household of God. And particularly he's focused on not just worship, but corporate worship. When we come together to worship. And he begins talking about worship by bringing up the issue of prayer. And again, he's not thinking primarily of, of individual prayer here, although it certainly applies. He's thinking primarily of corporate prayer. When we come together to worship and we come together to pray together. I thought about this this week because I keep hearing that in most evangelical churches, they've done away with 
the kind of pastoral prayer that Ben prayed this morning. That they don't have long prayers for the work of the church and for the community, for the nation, for the world. They've left that out of their worship services because I guess they feel that modern people don't have the attention span or the interest in long prayers like that. But Paul here seems to emphasize the importance of corporate prayer. That when we worship, that we spend time praying, seeking the Lord together. And in verses 3 and 4, he says that when we pray with our mission and focus, he is pleased. It says, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, there's a connection between worship and prayer and seeing people come to know Christ. There's a connection there. What he's saying is is that when we worship and pray with the proper focus, which is first of all God himself and secondly the mission that God has sent us upon, that that prayer and worship will fuel and and propel the church into its mission. And so it raises the question, if churches are just being attractional and they're not being missional, then are they worshiping and praying the way they should be? From what I've read, I think, and I don't have firsthand experience of this, but again, I do a lot of reading, and in my reading, I've gotten the impression that the problem with the missional church movement, a lot of times, some often, is that they are focused upon service and justice issues and social transformation, they get focused on these things, but they tend to skip over the importance of biblical study and prayer and doctrine and worship. The focus gets to be on the outreach where they forget what's supposed to fuel and propel the outreach. And salvation becomes more about material deliverance than spiritual salvation. But I say that with some, hopefully, humility because... Before you criticize churches doing it the wrong way, you better make sure there's not a log in your eye. And I'll be honest with you, the leadership of this church has been having conversations about the fact that we tend to be an attractional church. We don't, we're not missional in the way that we look at our community the way we should be. We expect people to come to us. Yes, we warmly welcome people who come to us, but what are we doing to reach out to them, to to go where they are, to meet them in their need? So we need to learn to be more missional while other churches need to be more attractional in the kind of worship and prayer that they offer. Jesus taught us to begin our prayers in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Focus upon his glory first and foremost. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We used to call what I think they call missional prayer now or missional worship. I would call kingdom-focused prayer and kingdom-focused worship. That's what we used to call it. And I like that because it ties into how Jesus taught us to pray and to worship, is to keep our focus on the kingdom that we are a part of. Jesus taught us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's true ultimately in our worship and in our prayers before it's true in the rest of our lives. So what is the kingdom that we ask for when we pray? How do we do that? How do we pray corporately for God's kingdom to come? 
Well, we need to remember what Jesus told Pontius Pilate as he stood before him in his trial. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world, he says later. It's not of the world and it's not from the world. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is in the world, but it's not of the world or from the world. Those are important little words there. In other words, it is very much here, very much present in, in the midst of all the other kingdoms of the world, but it is of a radically different nature. It is a spiritual kingdom. And so the first thing that Paul tells us to be focused upon as we pray for the kingdom is that we are to seek to be a peaceful and quiet kingdom. I was fascinated by that phrase that he uses. He wants us to be able to be a peaceful and quiet kingdom. I'll talk about what that means in a minute. First of all, look at verse 1. Paul essentially there, he lists four different kinds of prayer. But So essentially what he's saying is pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. That's essentially what he's saying there in verses 1. Pray all kinds of prayer for all people, he says. For all people. God, think about that for a second. Have you prayed for all people this morning? Who among the 7 billion people did you leave out in your morning prayers this morning? Obviously, he doesn't intend for us to be praying for every single individual on the planet. What he means, and this is important to understand this passage because this passage is often misunderstood. Every time Paul talks about all people, understand that he's talking about all kinds of people, not every sin single individual. All people without distinction, not all people without exception, is the way that he uses the word all people here, or the word all. It's always determined by context. And what he means here is that we are to pray for all tribes, all tongues, all races, all classes, all people in all stations of life. We're to pray for all kinds of people. And we, this is confirmed. We know we're interpreting that the right way because in verse 2, what does he do? He zeroes in on one kind of people. Pray for all kinds of people, but particularly, he says, I want you to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Isn't it interesting that when he begins to focus on one kind of people, the first group of people he mentions are people who are government officials. That's interesting to me because why would kingdom-focused prayer be focused upon government officials who I think all of us would have to admit most of them aren't believers. Most of them are outside of the kingdom of God. Some aren't, and we praise God for those who are members of the kingdom of God and also working in the kingdom of this world. But the vast majority of them aren't even part of the kingdom. Why are we praying for them first? I don't know about you, but on my prayer list, I pray for my family, I pray for my church family, I pray for my friends. Government officials make the list, but they're way down there, you know, and usually I run out of time before I get to the government officials in my prayer time. It's also surprising when you think about the fact that who was Paul's king at the time? This was written in the early 60s AD. His king was Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero over Rome. He was the most, one of the most cruel and sadistic emperors in the history of the Roman Empire. And he was particularly cruel and sadistic towards Christians. You've heard the stories about him using Christians uh, burning as his lamps for his garden parties and feeding Christians to the lions in the Colosseum. He was a vile, wicked, horrific ruler. 
So you have trouble praying for your government officials? Paul says, pray for kings and all who are in positions of authority. Why is prayer for our ruler so important to Paul? Why? It's because of our mission that prayer for government rulers is so important. Genesis chapter 9 teaches that the sword was given to the civil government in order to punish evildoers. That's where the, 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 the concept is first introduced with the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 is where we get the penalty of blood, the power of the sword being given to, to restrain evil. And then Paul elaborates on this at great length in Romans 13, that the government is established by God. All the authorities, the civil government authorities are appointed by God to restrain evil, to punish the, 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 the bad and to reward the good and to, prov to provide the sword of, of punishment to restrain wickedness in a culture full of wickedness and chaos. That's how we understand the purpose of civil government, is to bring order to a society made up of sinners like you and me. To restrain the wickedness, to keep us from being as evil as we would be without that restraint. It's an external restraint upon our wickedness. And the idea is that it would provide an orderly society, but why? An orderly society is inherently good, but it's really good for the kingdom of God. And that's Paul's focus here. In a good society, and we often look to early America as a time where the biblical worldview was dominant in the culture. And in that society, they set up civil government to be separate from the, from the church, absolutely. But we saw the civil government as being appointed by God with a particular responsibility before God and part of that responsibility, an important part of that responsibility, was to protect the church. And so you had the church praying for the state and the state providing order and protection and restraint of evil for the sake of the church. That's how an ideal society, which has rarely existed on the planet, would look. And so we're to pray that the state would do its job. Think about Paul. Paul... You know, in many ways during his ministry, if you read his, his, the story of his ministry in the book of Acts, government officials, yes, they were a, a hindrance to him in, in many ways, but they also were a great benefit to him. It was government officials that protected Paul's life on many occasions. Government officials that provided the opportunities for Paul to do different aspects of his ministry. And when you think more broadly of what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, this unusual period in ancient world history where there was very little war because the Roman Empire was so powerful. The Roman Empire brought peace and prosperity to that part of the world that the gospel was spreading through like wildfire. Why did the gospel spread so quickly and so effectively? Because the Roman Empire had established such a fantastic road system and it provided for safe transportation by sea and by land. They had culture in order and under control. And because of that, Paul and his associates and all the missionaries could go to the ends of the earth. It was amazing how fast the church spread in the first century. And it's because the government did its job. It was a pagan government. Did a lot of wicked, evil things, especially to Christians. But still, it provided order and protection so that the kingdom of God could spread to the four corners of the earth. Even 
written communication was much easier in the days of Rome. And so you think about how it enabled the word of God to spread. So we pray for the state to do its job well, according to the way that God designed it, so that we can do our job well, so we can fulfill our kingdom mission. Now, we'll often say that churches in, where they're facing great hostility and persecution from the, the government, often the, the church flourishes in that setting. Well, that's true, but that's in spite of it, not because of the persecution. The ideal situation is a situation like our own, where we have the freedom to preach the gospel. We have the freedom to gather to worship. We have the freedom to sh share the gospel with our neighbors. It's a privilege that we take way too much for granted. The goal of our prayers, he says, is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I remember when I first read that years ago, I, I, I didn't understand what he meant, peaceful and quiet. Well, that means, sounds like I should have a safe, mundane, prosperous, quiet life in the suburbs and not bother anybody and keep to myself. That's what it sounded like to me at first, but that's not what he means. When Paul talks about a peaceful life. He's talking about a life that's full of peace. Shalom, the Old Testament concept of being, everything being right with God, of, of a spiritual, physical, material wholeness to life, of having all your needs met in the Lord and being content, even in the spite of living as a fallen sinner in a fallen world, being content, being at peace, an inner peace. And then when he uses the word quiet, that word quiet doesn't mean silent or obscure or anything like that. The word quiet means, in this context, submissive, non-disruptive. In other words, the state, he's talking about how the state should look at the kingdom of God in its midst. If the state's doing its job and it's allowing the church to proclaim the kingdom and work for the kingdom in its midst, the church should never look at the the state should never look at the church as being a disruptive, angry, troublemaking entity. And unfortunately, sometimes our government looks at us that way. Sometimes it's unmerited, sometimes it's very merited. What the state should see when it looks at the church is a quiet and peaceful kingdom that is full of godliness and dignity. That is to be our witness to the state and to the other kingdoms of this world. Peter says, listen to what Peter says, echoing some of Paul's teaching in Romans 13, but listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think that Peter there is elaborating on what Paul means by a quiet and godly and dignified life. We are to be a witness. We are to silence the accusations that are brought against us. Yes, the world is always going to be suspicious of it because we always proclaim Jesus is Lord. And the world will always hate that. The world will always hate the gospel. But they should never be able to accuse us of being disruptive and angry 
and troublemakers. They should see us, if we're being what God has called us to be as the kingdom of God in the midst of these kingdoms, they should see us as a reflection of the very nature of God. Godliness should be our testimony to this nation. And, you know, it's strange to me. I guess it just shows the nature of the gospel in its battle with the darkness and the lies of this world is that the world so often hates Christians, kingdoms oppose Christians, when Christians should be by far the best citizens in any kingdom if they're living according to the word of God. The second description of a kingdom that Paul gives is that we are to seek a universal kingdom. Look at verse 4. He says that praying this way with our mission and focused, kingdom-focused prayer, praying this way is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Now again, that's a phrase that troubles some people. What does he mean God wants all people to be saved? In every case where he says all or all people, he's talking about all kinds of people, not every single individual. All without distinction, not all without exception. And so he's saying God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Kings, yes, but also peasants. Rich people, poor people, privileged people, underprivileged people, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, whatever. All kinds of people are to come into this kingdom. We are to be inviting all kinds of people into the kingdom. Paul keeps emphasizing all through his ministry, that's one of the major themes of his ministry, is that the gospel he preached was intended for all people. That's because his, his ministry was cutting edge. It was truly pioneering because he was the apostle, he says, that was appointed to bring the message to the nations. Listen, that's what he says in verse 7, if you just skip down there for a moment. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We keep forgetting in this day and age what a radical message that was in the first century. The church really struggled with that because the church had been in the Old Testament. The Old Testament church was a Jewish church. It was a national church. It was made up of a race of people, the Jews. But with the coming of Christ and the fullness of the gospel, Paul was appointed to be the pioneer who was to take the gospel to all nations. And that was a radical but wonderful, exciting idea that this kingdom was to become a universal kingdom that welcomed freely people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In the first century, the Jews had forgotten the ultimate promise that God had given to their father Abraham. He said, Abraham, I am going to give you a family. Your wife is barren. You're not able to have children. But I'm going to give you a family. But that's not the best part of it. Your family is going to become a great nation among nations. But that's not even the best part of it. Out of that nation is going to come one who's going to take the gospel to all nations. He's going to bless all nations. And that's the ultimate vision of the promise given to Abraham. And so in verse 6, Paul says that that one, that man Christ Jesus, he gave himself as a ransom for all. Now again, people get into theological debates about did Jesus die for some or all? Put it in context. Jesus died for all kinds of people. He didn't die for every single person. He died for every kind of person. Because Jesus himself said, 
that he, in Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here, here, Paul is not contradicting Jesus. Jesus said he gave his life as a ransom for many, but Paul says he gave himself as a ransom for all. Those two statements go together beautifully when you understand he's saying he gave himself as a ransom for all kinds of people. The total picture of the work of Christ must take into account the universal nature of his kingdom. No kind of person is beyond the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. When you come into the kingdom of God, all of your earthly identities, whether you're from State College or Pennsylvania or United States or North America, all those identities dissipate and become irrelevant when you come into the kingdom of God. We are to be good citizens of those kingdoms, but we are to never forget that our primary identity is as members of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, citizens of that kingdom and aliens in the midst of all the other kingdoms of this world. John gives us a beautiful picture in the vision he had of the totally redeemed church in heaven in Revelation chapter seven. This is our future. This is the church of the future. This is what we will see. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a day that is going to be when all of our earthly distinctions are totally irrelevant. We are one family from all these different backgrounds, all these different types, all these different kinds of people together, one in Christ for all eternity. Herman Bavinck, the theologian, wrote this at one time. He says, only humanity in its entirety, only humanity in its entirety is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. Only the universal kingdom of God fully illustrates the image of God before the world. If, it's, if the church is just an American church, if the church is just a white church, if the church is just an upper class church or a middle class church, it is not fully reflecting the image of God before the world. That's what our kingdom looks like. I had a trial early in my ministry. One of my uh, I had only been in the ministry about five or six years. And my first church, as many churches, not so much anymore, but used to be almost every church, had an American flag off my right shoulder as I was preaching from the pulpit. And I just kind of accept that it was in my church growing up. I just never thought much about it. But as I studied the scriptures, came under more and more understanding of what the kingdom of God was and who we were as a church, the more that flag bothered me early in my ministry. And I went to some of the leaders, I said, why is it there? What does that flag mean? It means more than we love our country, obviously, because we could put the flag anywhere. Why are we putting it right behind the pulpit? Why are we putting it right at the right hand of the preacher? And nobody gave me a good answer, so in my youthful zealousness, I waited one night when nobody else in the church, and I went and I grabbed the, the flag, and I took it, and I stashed it away back in a closet in the back of the church. And then didn't hear anything for a while, but then I started hearing things. That angered some people a lot. 
This is the first time I had to face some real serious opposition to anything I had done in ministry. And I had to have some painful sit-downs, especially with some veterans, men who had laid their lives on the line and had seen their brothers lay their lives on the line for, for that flag and what it represents. And I listened carefully. And I came to understand that my methods were probably wrong. I should have handled that in a more uh, pastoral way. But my principle was correct, and I still stand by it. The flag of the United States has no business in the sanctuary of God's people gathering for worship. And I got it confirmed because it wasn't much later than that that all of a sudden, through a weird quirk of God's providence, we had dozens of people from South Africa that were new to the country begin worshiping at our church. And I was able to say to the leadership, what if that flag was still there? What would that say to our brothers and sisters from South Africa? That they're second-class citizens when they come to our church? Is that what it would say? I don't know. But I don't want to get so much into the criticism. It's just the beautiful truth that when we come together to worship, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds, and everyone is welcome no matter where you come from, no matter what you look like, no matter what language you use. Everyone is welcome in this universal kingdom of God that we are preaching and proclaiming. We are all equal at the foot of the cross, equally sinful and equally in need of grace. It's a universal kingdom. But having said that, Paul makes it clear that although all kinds of people are welcome in the kingdom of God, there's only one way to get there. There's only one gate into the kingdom of God. There's only one narrow path. That's because we seek an, not just a universal kingdom, but an exclusive kingdom. Not all people will be saved. Paul makes that clear in verse 4 when he says that he equates being saved with coming to a knowledge of the truth. You can't be saved without knowing the truth, a truth revealed by God. And that truth begins with the statement in verse 5, there is one God. That was a radical idea in the Roman Empire. It's a radical idea today. There is only one God. Men have Imagine many different kinds of gods, thousands, tens of thousands of gods. But there's only one God. Every day when I walk my dog, I go by my neighbor's house and on the back of their car, they have one of those bumper stickers that was made popular by the group U2 that says coexist. And it uses the symbols of every major world religion to make the letters for the word coexist. And I'm always, every time I walk by that, I'm, I'm left ambivalent. If what that person means, if the intention behind putting that on their car, if the intention is that I, as a member of Christ's kingdom, and representing the, the truth about the one God, if that means that I am to treat other sinners, no matter what they believe, with respect, to love them, to serve them, then I'm on board. But if what they mean is that I should respect the false religion, then I am not on board. I will never respect a false gospel. I will never respect a false prophet. I will never respect a lie of Satan. And that's what all other religions are. And sometimes in the midst of trying to struggle with what it means to be a Christian in a quote-unquote tolerant society, we lose sight of that. Yes, we are to respect and love and serve sinners, but don't ever respect falsehood. Don't ever honor that which destroys the souls of mankind. 
In Acts chapter 17, Paul stood before Athenian philosophers. These were mostly polytheistic, pagan philosophers on Mars Hill when he addressed the, the, those teachers. This is what he said to them. He starts out in a very tactful way, talking about observing all their idols and their different religions, but this is what he says. He says, I proclaim the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, Paul understood that before the world, he represented the one true God among all the false gods. And he wasn't shy about making the, sure they understood that he represented the God who was the only creator and Lord of heaven and earth. John Stodd said one time, monotheism is the basis of world missions. Monotheism is the basis of world missions. In other words, that's what's to drive us in our mission is the understanding that we serve the one true God and all those people out there worshiping other gods are lost. They're captive to demonic teachings. They are slaves to a lie. That is to fuel our mission. But Paul says being monotheistic is not enough because he goes on to say, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, the truth that saves includes not just that there's one God, but there's only one way to God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The word mediator implies a broken relationship. You wouldn't need a mediator if there wasn't a broken relationship. Scripture teaches that sin breaks the relationship between God and man. And we would be forever unreconciled with our creator and our judge. We would be forever under his wrath and condemnation and unreconciled to him if he had not sent on a mission to mediate his son, Jesus Christ. God the Son came into the world to be a mediator. A mediator is somebody who stands in the middle between two parties in a broken relationship. And Paul identifies him as the man, Christ Jesus. Now, again, if you're not careful interpreting that as well, is he saying Jesus was only a man? No, he doesn't say he's only a man. He's stressing the fact that God the Son became a man. That he was both God and man, because if you're going to be a mediator between a holy God and a sinful man, you'd better have a God-man in the middle. Somebody who can faithfully represent God and somebody who can faithfully represent man to God. He was a mediator, God the Son, who became man. And then the means of his mediation, Paul says, is that he gave himself as a ransom for all. You see how Paul beautifully contains the whole gospel in just a couple of phrases? Such a whole complex theological gospel, and he gets it in two phrases. I wish I could do it like Paul does it. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay, you've got a mediator. You've got a broken relationship. You've got a mediator. Now you need a ransom to bring them together. What's the ransom? He gave himself. His blood became the price. A ransom is a price that is paid in order to free a slave or a prisoner. And the price that bought us our freedom was the blood of the mediator himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He died in our place on the cross. And if Christ's blood was not shed for you, you are lost. There is no hope for you. You are unreconciled to your creator and judge. And you will 
pay for your sins for eternity. But if you have a mediator, the mediator, Christ Jesus, and his blood was shed for you, you are reconciled to God. You are brought into his kingdom. You're translated from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light for eternity. The good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is the truth that saves. That's the truth that Paul is talking about. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or as Peter says in Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me go back to the idea of missional. Are we a missional church? Are you a missional Christian? The mission is happening. The mission is being accomplished. Some of us are sitting on the sideline and watching others do it, but it is being accomplished. God promised this to Daniel. Remember back, Daniel had that wonderful interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this big, huge statue made up of different parts, made of different metals. And each part, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, each part represented a different kingdom, his kingdom and the great kingdoms to come. But then in telling what the dream revealed and what it meant, Daniel says, what you saw in your dream was a rock being cut out of a mountain without hands. In other words, a rock cut out of a mountain by God. And that rock rolls down the mountain and it comes down and it hits the statue representing all the kingdoms of this world and it destroys them completely and then that rock becomes a mountain that grows and grows and spreads until it fills the whole earth and so in his interpretation Daniel says and in those days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever that's the kingdom that we represent. That kingdom is here. I, this past week, as a, some, to, as a project to help a project that, uh, that the church leadership is working on, I spent some time taking all the addresses in our church directory of all our members and adherents. I took those addresses and I plugged them in so that I could plot them on a map of this center, center county area. And I tell you, it's such an encouraging thing. I want to share it with all of you because when I mean, you look at that map, you think, Wow, this is where the kingdom of God is. We've got this area blanketed. This stone mountain is growing. We've got light all over Center County, just by the families represented in our church, let alone the other biblical gospel-centered churches. We need to be more missional. We need to be more missional or thinking. We're all on a mission for the kingdom, all of us. The church is, but you as individuals are too. How are you doing on your mission? I really fear the day that I might stand before my Lord and Savior. And he would say to me, how'd you do on your mission? I sent you into the world on a mission. How did you do with it? And I'd have to honestly say, you know what, Lord? I, I got a little distracted. You know, I, I got a good education. I, I got a good career. Got a really nice house in the suburbs and a couple of nice cars. And I got a good reputation in the community. And then he would say to me, but I didn't ask how you did with your kingdom. I said, how do you do with my kingdom? How much of what I do is more about my kingdom than his kingdom? 
How are you doing on your mission? Here's where it begins. Don't ever forget that. Gospel-centered, biblical worship and prayer is what drives the mission of the church. Don't ever leave that out. Here's where we get the heart for mission. And I hope the Holy Spirit has used the Word of God to light that fire in you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Word of God and thank you for the mission you've called us to. Father, we are so weak, we are so distracted, we are so wrapped up in the things of this world. Lord, forgive us. And I pray that through your Word and your Spirit this morning, you would refocus us. Help us to see the glory of Christ, to see his kingdom growing, and give us that fire within to be a part of it. No matter what stage of life we're in, no matter where we come from, no matter what we look like, Lord, thank you that you've made us a part of your kingdom. May the gospel become what we live for and what we live to proclaim. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.